Hello listeners and welcome to the third season of Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I am the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year our association hosts several leading mental health conferences that allow us the chance to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as we go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand. From lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics, leading community organisations and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering for some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners and welcome to episode 3 of season 3. Over the last three decades, problem gambling in Australia has been recognised as a serious and complex issue by clinicians, researchers and policymakers. Committed to actively making a change in this field is this week's podcast guest, Dr. Gabrielle Byrne, a senior advisor at the Victorian Responsible Gambling Foundation. Often referred to as an effective change agent, Gabrielle has spent the last 20 years assisting individuals, organisations and communities to modify their perception and attitude about gambling-related harm. Between 2009 and 2016, Gabrielle designed, structured and trialled a group program to prevent gambling relapse. All programs were designed to provide participants with regular structured activities as well as educational sessions aimed at improving their understanding about addiction. Results revealed significant improvement for participants in the areas of social connectedness, self-efficacy and mental health. Importantly, results also indicated that the program supported the goals of either absence from or control over gambling behaviour for participants who completed the program. It is now hoped that the program principles will will inform and improve the development of further relapse prevention programs across the addiction help sector. Tune in this week as our very own ANZMH ambassador and board member, Libby Trickett, has an in-depth discussion with Gabrielle regarding the details of her project, the outcomes, and how we can use the results to better understand how we see, treat, and recover from addiction. Dr. Gabrielle Byrne, thank you so much for for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you with us. Well, I'm really happy to be here and do and actually see you. you oh, <laughs> we're in person. Yeah, we are. We're not zooming or yes. skyping. Yeah. Yes, it's incredible, isn't it? Who yeah. knew at the end of 2020 that we'd be able to get back into face to face? Yeah, I'm really, really happy, and I'm happy to be in Queensland. Uh, you know, I'm from Victoria, mm. so it's um, it's been warm for you then. <laughs> Humid. Yes, humid. I think it's, um, but it's nice. I like the warmth, mm. but uh, I would love to see a bit of sunshine too. Yes, it's been a little dreary, unfortunately. Okay. No. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your your background and, and how it is you came to be at this point in your career? Okay, so um, I'm German mm. and in 1987, my husband was Australian and I decided um, we just had a little girl to leave Germany because of the big nuclear cloud that came over Germany. Um, mm. You know, Chernobyl happened mm. and we, de- we thought our soil, we had a house, was radioactive. So we decided that it would probably be a safe and better place for kids to grow up. So we came back to Australia. Wow. And um, 
I'm a teacher by trade, and then I got a job as an um, executive assistant because I'm kind of bilingual uh, German and, uh, for a German motor company. Oh, right. And um, I hated my job, and that was the first time then that um, in 1992 when poker machines were introduced to Victoria. Um, normally on a Friday night, my work colleagues and I would go to a pub, sit around a table and discuss how stupid our boss was. <laughs> um, but once they became a gaming venue, we all marched into this room together and um, took it in turns to push a button. Mm. And I still remember how boring is this. Mm. But I had a fight with my boss one day and then <clears throat> this little voice popped up and said, well, why don't you go to the gaming venue? Uh, and forget all about it. So mm. that was the first time I went by myself, and within five weeks I was there every day, sometimes right. three to five times a day. So that had obviously um, terrible consequences on, um, of course, financial is mm. the first thing you notice, but secondly, who I became in the process of lying and deceiving and not being where I said I was and being late to my kids' plays mm. and... You know, so there were a lot of the imp the impact of this addiction on my family was really horrific. It's incredible how open you are about your experiences because you know so often there's so much shame attached to something like that to any sort of addiction. But you know, certainly gambling um, is incredibly prevalent in um, Australian society. Yeah, and it's normalised, so that makes it harder, you know. Mm. People can – that's why in my presentations I talk about a hot, passionate love affair. Yes. Because a lot of people can relate to that whilst relating to having a problem with gambling mm. is harder. Mm. Um, you know, my husband's first reaction when I told him was, well, why don't you just stop going there? Yeah, why don't you just yeah. stop going? Yeah. Why I mean, just, just stop drinking? Why don't you just stop eating? Why yeah. don't you just stop – Doing whatever it is you're and doing. And it's, it's because it's not a substance addiction. Um, you know, I didn't have to put push a needle in my arm mm. to feel high. Uh, all I had to do is go into a venue and I could – I can – I mean, now I'm much more aware, but I can feel my physiology changing mm. because the chemicals that start to flood your brain, you know, like adrenaline is pumping, then you, um, you know, you, you produce dopamine. Mm. You, you, you produce your own high. Mm. You don't have to have a needle. And that's the hardest part. I think that's what's really interesting for people who don't understand gambling as an addiction, you know, because with drugs or alcohol or those other sort of substance abuse addictions, it, it, it's a, a chemical high, you know, that you're putting something in your body to take pain away yeah. or to create that feeling of euphoria. Can you explain a little bit more about that um, addiction with gambling? Gambling, yeah. yeah. So, what is the payoff? Okay, so when you when you start gambling um, and you have a win, and really it doesn't matter if it's a hard, I mean, it's of course it's more intense if it's a really big win, mm. but that also makes it harder because you then produce the chemicals that flood your brain mm. with endorphins, and the endorphins are the body most potent painkiller. Mm. Um, and so you actually get a high mm. um, and like a drug, uh, what then used to give you the high, you know, like winning 50 bucks or um, you, you need to top it up because uh, once your brain levels out and so you, you um, experience a little high, that becomes normal. Mm. And then to get that 
extra kick, you need to up the bet. You need to increase the back. And even I had a guy once telling me, Gabi, um, being on the job to get the money to gamble gives me that kick. Wow. So, you know, uh, that's the risk-taking behavior from gambling. It doesn't do it anymore. So then to steal the money or to right. borrow the money becomes the... It becomes even more risky. risky. Yeah. yeah, and that's where the payoff starts. To, yeah. And obviously the disintegration yeah. um, in people's lives, which you yeah. started then, to allude and to. And then when you stop, it's like, um, you know, this is normal level and like you, you, you level your brain out when you stop. So that's a normal healthy brain, but that's not normal for you. Mm. So you become aggressive and irritable and mm. you crave that imbalance and so you have to... You know, nothing feels as good as going to a gaming venue. Mm. Walk through the door and you think, oh, I'm normal. Mm. You know? It's interesting um, the way you're talking about that. Uh, just reflecting on my own life, that's certainly um, something I've had to manage post-swimming. Um, you know, the high of going to an Olympic Games, it's this incredible adrenaline rush uh, you know, lots of external payoff and, and enjoyment and um, achievement in that, you know, and you only get it kind of once every four years, but then coming down off that. Mm. And knowing that you won't have that same exactly ever again. Ever again. Mm. It's um, how do you, as someone who's recovering from gambling uh, addiction, how do you manage that? How do you work through that? What sort of things do you need to find in your daily life to, to help assist with that? Well, there were quite a few things I did. I, I think I learned um, to start off with, I needed to learn techniques to control the urge. Mm. And, and that through studies, I, I came across some really hands-on strategies that helped me to fight the urge to gamble. Mm. Um, I could give you an example if you want to. Yes, absolutely. Okay, let's just say, to make it easy, we know people that love chocolate and shouldn't have chocolate, right? Yes. <laughs> so now these people, before they indulge in the behavior, they fight this internal war. And mm. it says, let's just have one piece of chocolate. Mm. And the strong person made a commitment, no, I'm not going to have chocolate. The voice comes back and says, well, what's wrong with one piece? And you say, well, I know I'm not going to stop with one piece. And so when it comes back, when the voice of temptation comes back the third or fourth time, it comes up with arguments like, you know, you worked so hard in the garden. Mm. Your husband you know, is, a is a pain. Your kids annoy you. At our age, who cares what we look like? And Are you in my head right now? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't look at you. <laughs> I didn't look like at you. Like my mindset <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> I did. But the last convincing argument mostly is you deserve this. Of and then you have one yes. piece of yeah, whole block internal war lost. Yes. So one of the strategies that I learned in um, a course that I did was I gave this voice an image. Mm. So I had a fuzzy idea about God and the devil. So mine became a demon, a little, um, you know, um, Lord of the Rings creature that like saliva running like down the face. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So it's like a really ugly thing. I put him on the passenger seat. And when he tried to tempt me with, you know, this time is your lucky day or you play tendos, you can control it. I would see this ugly thing and I would talk back to it like I would talk to my worst enemy. I would mm. say, hey, you would like to go and spend ten dollars. I don't, so mm. you just get lost. Mm. It's it's working with chocolate too, mm. but um, so uh, and some people can't relate to demon images. So anything that works like snider, snakes and spiders. But 
um, I had a lady whose husband ran away with the secretary, so she put the secretary in the picture. <laughs> <laughs> Not a very Christian approach, but, you know. What, whatever works. Whatever works, yeah. So, so I had a few of those strategies, which were not strategies that I had to um, put time aside for. You know, I put them all in a book, and I published it in 1997, when Tim Costello launched it. And then we... Um, I taught it to people. I'm not a counsellor, mm. um, but a lot of people stopped gambling with mm. my strategies, but mm. then they relapsed. Mm. Um, and the common argument was, we have nowhere else to go. Mm. And this is when I realised that the venue um, actually is of much greater importance to people than just um, the activity. Because mm, you you talk a lot about um, the prevalence of relapse of, of yeah. gambling relapse. That's my that's my um, sort of expert uh, field a uh, yeah. field of expertise is, is relapse prevention. Yeah, and uh, why is that? Is it purely because they feel like they have no place else to go, no other way to kind of transmute these feelings and emotions that they're experiencing? Or I think there are two risk factors that in in our programs, in our treatment programs, haven't been efficiently addressed, mm -hmm. sufficiently addressed. I sometimes have to think about my German translation. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one is that when people want to stop gambling, and they do, um, they need stuff to do, mm. right? Because, and we, in, in academic terms, we talk about leisure substitution. So mm. you need to substitute the actual time you spend and the, the activity with something else that's exciting to some Because that would sometimes be hours, I imagine, for, oh, for people. Days. Yeah, people days. Yeah. Yeah. As long as they have money yeah. or access to money. Mm. And then the other risk factor is social isolation mm. because they don't want to do anything else by themselves. But they, at the time when they're actually in, in a crisis that they stop, they, they lost all their family and friends. Mm. And so... So these two risk factors were um, something that I could observe in my life, but in the many people that I actually taught, um, you know, my strategies to. So I thought, well, I've got to find a way on how to how to um, utilize those those two risk factors. Find a program that I can develop that addresses those and see if it, it if helps to prevent relapse. So that's that's basically where my Thesis started many years ago. Yeah, yeah. So I had I ran about eleven programs. Can you tell us a little bit about those programs? If you like me to? Yeah, yeah. I would love to. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, before I ran the programs too, though, I um, I founded a non for profit mm, called wow. Chrysalis Inside, and we we ran a restaurant in the Shire of the Yarra Ranges in uh, Lilydale, hundred and ten seater restaurant, sort of probably one of the first social enterprises, and I used up to 90 volunteers to run the restaurant. Um, half of them were people with gambling issues. The others were people from the community who, you know, just wanted to give something back. And mm. I had a chef that I paid. He was the only one that I didn't take a gamble on, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, we had um, activities in the restaurant where we... Um, we had a regulars table. Have you been to Germany? Yes, yeah. I have, yes. Yeah, so um, when I had a fight with my husband that night and I wanted to get away because, you know, when you get to a point where 
you just want to hurt the other person. You don't just really need to walk care. out. Yeah. So I had to, yeah. So I could just walk around the corner to my local pub. The public knew my name. And there was a regulars table and I sat at that table with sometimes strangers and talking about how stupid my husband was. <laughs> um, in Australia, specifically as women, we don't have a lot of venues at night that are mm. safe mm. unless we want to do another arts and crafts class, you know. Um, sometimes we just want to get, get away and have some fun. Mm. And so um, the, the chapel, um, I think, was what... I think the gaming venues are for many people mm. uh, the third place. Uh, Ray Oldenburg, the sociologist, branded it as um, a place where people gather for the sheer pleasure of good company and lively conversation. Mm. And I think that's that's a very important factor that we overlook sometimes in when we address, um, you know, relapse and relapse prevent that we forget to address. Yeah. So the chapel was one of the projects that after four years the um, owner sold the, wanted to sell the premises and didn't want a freehold so then we went you know we were on the street mm. and I then had to dis find a way of what I what I saw when people got engaged in doing something hands-on like front of house or kitchen duties they recovered quicker mm. I didn't have any academic proof but mm. I just observed so so then I wanted to do something and develop a model that I could actually evaluate, which I did. It's remarkable. Do you find um, just talking about uh, connection and social connection? Yeah. Do you find in today's society that we're like, I mean, there's loads and loads of information about how we are becoming more disconnected. You know, mm -hmm. social media, individualization, all of these things that are impacting our connectedness with others. Do you find? people are able to kind of get out of their mindsets because I know how uh, nervous and anxious I get in new social social situations, meeting new people. Um, so do you find that does impact the yeah. way people are, you know, connecting? Connecting, yeah. And that's why um, the, the model that I developed actually care of that because I, I was very much aware that people lost all social confidence. Social yeah. skills, I was just yeah. going to say, social yeah. skills. Communication mm. skills. Um, self-efficacy, you know, there's self-worth. Mm. Um, and so the program we ran, um, we recruited people with um, gambling-related harm issues, significant, who were in counselling mm. um, and who described basically this hole when they stopped and that needed to be filled. So we had a referral from a counsellor. So we took 30 problem gamblers to start off with and... We trained up 15 volunteers, um, you know, in sort of barriers, boundary setting, and mm. like so they had a proper training. And um, we took them away for a weekend. Um, the old programs kicked off with a weekend away, mm. where we, in a four star setting, so we basically gave them a lot of luxury um, of not making them feel, you know, well, People feel worthless when they have an addiction. Exactly. So we, we actually told them, you, you're worth this. Mm. You know, you, anyway, so, um, and we exposed them to a smorgasbord of activities on the weekend. Mm. So with some, not laughter yoga, but we had com some um, teaching where the people um, were really funny, but they, they, it was like an icebreaker, mm. how to cope with stress through laughter. Mm. Um, then 
we did circus drills, photography, singing, dancing. Um, African drums was a hit. Mm. Every every program loved African drums. Mm. Um, and lots of walks and morning exercise. And, and so after that weekend, um, for 12 months with the first project, every fortnight we uh, came together and either had an educational session, like goal setting and all that kind of stuff, mm. or social. So we went to live music mm. bands, we went to pubs with our pokies, we went to um, um, the Austrian club. Like we, we mm. did things to, but mainly with the focus of reintegrating, mm. because some people, we had a guy who was used to be pinball king, and so we went all pinball. And, and and then he joined the club. And right. so, you know, we didn't want them to keep together. Yes. We just wanted them to experience with support yeah. something they enjoyed. Yeah, and it's exposing them to different options of yeah. using that time and yeah. getting those little payoffs that they might have got through gambling in a different way, obviously, but in a more positive, beneficial way for their lives. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it was very rewarding, yeah. you know. I mean, we couldn't save everybody, but in general, I think we planted the seed for many mm. and um, I added on after in my PhD I did actually research the volunteers because a lot of them the first group were volunteers from the community but then after every program there were people who were participants mm. who wanted to volunteer for the next group and how powerful would that be you yeah. know to have that lived experience as well yeah, of going through the program, Go, and going through, and then volunteering. Mm. But the volunteers actually recovered better. Wow! You know, so that what my research showed as well is like volunteering is one of the most powerful options to help people in recovery mm. because they take the focus away from themselves. Yeah, and their understanding other people's experiences can sometimes help you process your own experiences and understand yourself better. True. Yeah. No, so. That was that was really, you know, it, it was 17 years of my life. Yes, <laughs> trying to find money to fund the next program, yeah, but it was good. And so, 2020 has been a year that a lot of people want to forget, probably in a lot of ways. Yeah. Have you found, because obviously with lockdowns and all sorts of closures, I'm sure um, uh, sort of those uh, venues were venues would, would have been yeah. closed. Uh, how, did you find? Or has there been information regarding, you know, how much gambling has either, you know, lessened or has it just gone online, which is where most things are ending up? I think there, there is um, research underway mm. because we're just coming out of it. Of you course. Know, so yeah. it, it, it would be very hard to estimate. And we have um, uh, in March next year, we have um, the Victorian Responsible Gaming Foundation, who I work for. Mm. Uh, we will have um, a couple of sessions um couple will be online some personal where we actually um uh, do a knowledge dissemination about um what we learned from covid regarding gambling Mm. um at the moment there are some kind of indications that a lot of people went online Mm. but now that the venues are back open the indications are also that people have returned. Mm. You know, looking at the expenditure in the venue since they reopened gives um, a rise of level to of concern that we're back to normal. Right. Yeah. And for many, it was such a um, 
reprieve to be able to have some money mm. and being able to spend it on their children and um, maybe some luxury items that they couldn't have afforded before. And the hope was that, you know, if you stay away long enough that it breaks the cycle. Mm. But um, I, I don't know if it happened and that's something that we, I think, investing some money in at the moment in Victoria to find out. Yeah, because you know, I think it's interesting because it's been such a tumultuous year and there's so much uncertainty in the community and then people obviously have lost jobs mm -hmm. and then would still have been potentially receiving some sort of um, payment support so they still might have had money to yep. spend on their gambling. Mm -hmm. um, and superannuation. And they were, superannuation. They were which allowed is to withdraw, you know, so... Um, it'd be interesting, really interesting to see the effect that COVID had on, on gambling. What we know, though, is that um, there is a new demographic that is um, on the rise and that is young people and mm. uh, gambling, um, which... Why know, is that? Sports betting. Ah, got you. Yep. And accessibility to, <laughs> to that, obviously. Yeah, and, and the real big marketing push from mm. the betting agencies and... Um, the proliferation of 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 ads, um, you know. I mean, we, in Victoria, we have um, Professor Samantha Thomas just spoke today. Um, he had the conference about uh, that the young people, um, as young as eight, actually recognise, mm. you know, the the, the the betting agencies and who they sponsor, and mm. you know, I mean, that that sort of should give us give us some, you know, ways to. Our concerns about what, how, how young do we actually have to start educating kids? Should there be some sort of regulation over advertising? Surely there is. In Victoria, it's actually probably the strongest one. Um, we we not allow um, ads after eight thirty on the television, mm -hmm. and a lot of sports club. Um, the Victorian Responsible Gaming Foundation does a lot of work with um, AFL clubs and and community clubs to. Um, get them to stop having, you know, all these banners and things mm. in their games. And there's, you know, like Geelong, they, they just uh, decided um, to, to break from that, mm. from that dependency mm. on the funding. And so there is a lot of work that's been, that we've been doing behind the scenes, but um, obviously not strong enough yet. Yeah, well, it's, it's such a difficult thing to disconnect that from sport because it's such a lucrative industry and yeah. so many, so much of their money um, for the teams would, would come from those companies and organisations, which is... It's a bit like tobacco, though. Yes, I agree. So we need to probably, um, you know, Sam, um, uh, who just spoke before, she said we have to really employ the, the tobacco um, approach mm. and denormalise... See, mm. the thing is, like, kids think that it's normal, that it is normal and linked with sport, and it's not normal. Mm. Because if you ask, a lot of kids, uh, probably the majority of children, uh, would say it's a bad thing. Mm. You know, they don't want it. Mm. But because they think it's normal, they don't do anything about it. Yeah, it's really dangerous uh point to get to when that conversation is normalised around betting yeah. or, or binge drinking or yeah, any anything. sort of yeah. Yeah, risk taking. Alcohol is the same. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you know, you hardly see any any celebration where there's no alcohol involved. You mm. know? Um, yeah. And gambling has 
been like that for a long time, you mm. know, it's the Melbourne Cup, it's culturally ingrained. Um, and at the beginning when gambling, you know, the gambling industry was still allowed to advertise pokies mm. in a big way. I mean, you know, wouldn't you rather be at George's with your friends? You know, that was like a, a, a sound, like a song that I still recall. Mm. It just uh, implicated that it's a place for meeting with friends mm. and doing some fun activities and winning some money. You mm. know? And that's probably the furthest from it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it can be incredibly damaging to people's lives. Yeah. So what... Um, what are the similarities? Are there similarities between a gambling addiction and a substance addiction? Or are they fundamentally different, do you think? I think that um, the consequences of any addiction is probably comparable. Mm. You know, like um, even like a love affair. You mm. know, it goes hand in hand with things like lying, um, um, behavior that's out of character you know in my case um, depending on how my gambling went on the day mm. um, you know I either would buy my kids everything that they wanted when I picked them up from school or if I lost everything and put my last dollar into the machine and they asked me for a 30 cent ice cream cone I would be angry at them and told them you know that they were spoiled and mm. so I think you know what it does to the individual um, in the process is comparable um, the difference I think with gambling and say alcohol or drugs um, is that visually you can hide it a lot longer right you know like it, it's not obvious on a physical level um, if somebody gambles excessively mm. you would find that um people don't look after themselves that well mm. so there might be you know because when i gambled i <laughs> i wouldn't um spend a fortune on my haircut which mm. i do normally i would go to a 15 dollar you know like and, yes. and that would show um my husband said it didn't but um i believe that there is a difference mm. um so but it's not like um you, you, you make obvious signs of um, you're slurring your words or you mm. know, which with some forms of addiction is, 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 is uh, common. So I, I think there is a difference in, in, in the way it progresses probably mm. and also there, sh there is a significant difference in the way we treat it, I think. Mm. But um, in my field of expertise in preventing relapse, I think we we could um, we could do a lot more and address those risk factors across addictions. Mm. And I don't know. Do you know the um, the um, Red Park experience? Do you know that? I have heard of it, but please explain it. Well, in the 1970s, um, a uh, psychologist, Bruce by the name of Bruce Alexander, he was from Canada, he, he conducted this experience where he took a rat and put it in a cage. Actually, he did quite a few rats, but um, he gave the rat, who was all by herself or himself, <laughs> the option to drink uh, either heroin or water. And he observed that after a while, the, 
that um, rat would just drink the heroin and then died of an overdose. Mm. So then he built a rat park and he made tunnels on toys and put male and female rats into the park, so a lot of fun things for the rats to do. Mm. And then um, he gave them the same option. Mm. And after a while, they hardly touched the heroin. They stayed with the water. And then he took a full-blown addicted rat and put it into the rat park. And within three weeks, the rat was clean. And so I guess, you know, what I'm saying is um, that experiment in some ways shows that rats need connection and fun things to do. But I think on a human level that should teach us that I think that's a very important um, thing in, in, in having people recover mm. is to, uh, to address those issues um, and not just – I guess our counselling focuses on changing the behaviour – Mm. But I think we should really um, increase our focus on maintaining the change. Mm. And that's only possible if you have help yes. and support. And not just in the office with the counsellor, but when you leave the counsellor's office. And, and you need to be reintroduced to having fun. Mm. And especially if you to look at the risk-taking behaviour of gambling... You need some exciting things to do. Mm. And that could be different for... It's not, you know, one thing fits all. Um, that's why we need, like, a smorgasbord of things. Yeah. So with your recovery, you obviously spoke about your demon and, and being able to kind of see it or mm. talk to it in a way. What else, you know, is it part of that connection? Was that an important part of your recovery? Yeah, for me, I think if you look at... Um, the volunteer aspect, right? I think once I stopped gambling and I started this developing that chapel, like my restaurant, and then for me that was part of your healing. My healing. It was basically giving back, but also starting something exciting, something new, um, challenging, very challenging. You know, starting to speak about it, um, which wasn't easy at the beginning, but. I think the more I did it, the more I also felt comfortable in knowing that the person across the table might not have a gambling problem, but mm. on some level, we all have something. Something, yeah. And um, and I did. I mean, I went back to basketball. Like I, you know, I, I think also to to physically um, um, keep yourself in a healthy space because if you, you know, if you feel better, you can talk to the beast better. Yes. And and sometimes when you have an addiction, it seems like everything else in your life becomes very undisciplined. Mm. Yeah, it's remarkable, I think, when you make that sort of shift yeah. um, in that mindset and understanding yourself and what you need. Yeah, and uh, but you you know often need help. Yes, and um, and counselling is amazing, mm. um, and I I recommend it highly. You know that. Um, if anybody listens, that I, I would always support um, seeing somebody. Mm. But also look at some kind of um, group. And I'm not saying like a AA or GA or something, but look at a, um, a group that can help you uh, find find some kind of exciting things to, thing to do. Mm. And it might be trying out a few and take a friend. Yes. Yeah. Um, often the counsellors will 
uh, have some group therapy and when people are together for a while they build their own friendship group mm. but my theory is you don't want to come from an isolated being into an isolated group yeah you know if you connect like i had a couple of ladies who were grossly overweight and um but they loved the water mm. but they didn't want to go to a pool because of you know the, the way they looked and they loved water aerobics but especially you know, there's sometimes 20, 30 women mm. hopping around in the water and they didn't think that they could do this. So we organized um, an instructor. There were four of them. And we made sure we went at one o'clock at lunchtime where there were no schools and mm. things. So, and they did a couple of sessions there and um, built up some confidence. And then we had, you know, we went to a 50-plus group that mm. was established and two of them stayed there and, and joined in. And, they, you know, once you once you know you like other people. Yes. Know, Most like other people don't care. They just want to enjoy themselves. Yeah. They love connecting with other people who yeah. like what they like. It's yeah. lovely. And then you have a coffee afterwards. And this is where um, I think we need to sort of put our focus into when we talk about recovery. Mm. That's wonderful. And so is that what you're sort of working towards next year is sort of developing that side of things or? Well, I'm, I'm now working for the Responsible Gaming Foundation as a senior advisor. So my role is I look after um, six regional rural services, gamblers help services. Mm. Um, so we fund them and my role is to, you know, in some ways look at their performance if the funding is spent. But I also have um, the opportunity because, uh, like, I, you know, uh, they let me come here and, and, mm. and talk about my research um, to, to plant some seeds about what else can we do. You know, I, I'm, I'm allowed to be very creative in, 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 in my work. Mm. Um, but I, I think it's past my time to go out and, and run more groups because mm. I feel... Um, I've done this, yeah. after, uh, and I, I have the research that it, that proves it works. Mm. So somebody could pick it up and deliver it for you. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and and it could be done in a neighbourhood house or in a, you know, um, another service. There's op options, you know. Mm. And what's motivating you to continue working in in this area? What do you feel like you haven't yet achieved? Um, that's a good question. I think I achieved enough in, in finding some evidence and, and helping people. Like, I mean, over the years, I probably, uh, you know, would have seen 300 people coming through my programs, maybe, maybe more. Uh, and I've seen them change their lives around. And, and that's very rewarding. And I, I really cherish that. And I'm still... You know, we have a group that meets, um, you know, regularly at the Coburg RSL because it has no pokies and mm. got live music and it's a really nice community club and we just catch up and talk. But I think for my journey now, um, I'd like to give my, the best of what I have to, to the organisation I work for because on that level there's some decision making possible you mm. know so if we want to change things um it can't it, it it will come from grassroots eventually mm. but i think my my ad, ad, activist times are over mm. because i feel 
I want to contribute on a more systemic level to yeah. change. Gabby, that was just such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your story with I us. It was so easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was easy with you. Uh, thank you. I'm really, um, really excited to have met you oh, because okay. I, I've read a fair bit about you. Oh, so. you're very kind. <laughs> thank you so much. I thank really you. appreciate it. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.